You're listening to Nick Luck Daily. This edition is brought to you by Fitzdares, by the Racehorse Owners Association, and by Thoroughbred Racing Commentaries Global Rankings. Good morning, welcome to the show. Thanks for listening again. It is Friday, August the 6th. Lots to enjoy this weekend. Shergar Cup Day at Ascot tomorrow. Primoris de Geese Sunday. Keelan Phoenix Stakes Sunday as well. And we will be talking a little bit later in the programme to Bloodstock agent Alistair Donald, who has just brokered the sale of Atomic Force to Hong Kong after some very exciting juvenile performances. We'll be talking about the implications of that and whether indeed... The UK now is simply serving as a nursery for the rest of the world, or whether this isn't something to worry about too much. James Willoughby will be along later as well, of course, with his weekly roundup of the global TRC rankings. And there are some massive movers as well. And you get the feeling that it won't be too long before Tanawa puts herself right back in the top 10 because she reappeared last night at Leopardstown as we discussed with Dermot World on this podcast the day before yesterday and notwithstanding his concerns she was pretty impressive admittedly she beat marked inferiors but it was good to see her back now in a moment I will be getting the thoughts of the Racing Post's Maddie Playle but first of all what did rider Colin Keane make of it I caught up with him earlier on as he was riding out first lot yeah I thought it was a, it was a very good performance considering um, our biggest worry probably going there was uh, lack of fitness. Um, we thought she was only about 70-80% fit maybe. Uh, so to do what she did at that level of fitness I thought was a very impressive performance. Um, can you kind of gauge, even if she's below par fitness wise and even if she's not capable of producing her absolute optimum can you gauge what kind of what kind of ability she naturally retains from, from giving her a run like that? Oh, you'd have to. I think you'd have to think yeah, that she retains uh, a lot, a lot of the, her ability. Uh, if anything, I thought she's a much, she's a much stronger filly this year, much stronger physical. So you could say with, with each year she's gotten better and improved. So if she could improve uh, from four to five, like she has from three to four, you'd, you'd think you'd have a, you'd have a proper filly at hand. So you you really felt she picked up the bridle and, and tanked strongly with you through the race. She felt physically strong. Yeah, they, they went they went nice and even gallop from Flagfall, uh, and we were in no rush to get into it early door, so we let her warm into it. Uh, but the thing you do, I, she impresses you most is her her foot at the end of a mile and a half. Um, it's like you're it's like you're only really something in at the, the two pole early the way she can pick up. It's, it's, a, it's a nice feeling to be sitting on. I, I'll bet it is a nice feeling to, to sit on. Um, could you compare it to anything you've quite sat on before? You've obviously ridden some very good horses, but in terms of horses that stay and that turn of foot, have you ever ridden one like her? Uh, no, I can't say I have. Um, as you say, I, I've never rode a, probably a stayer like that that can stay well and has a turn of foot. So, no, I'm, just, I'm, just, I'm delighted. I'm very lucky to be, to be riding her, to be honest. Um, and she just she was just a little bit um, on top of herself in the preliminaries. She she got a bit edgy and then sort of had to go in the stores and you had to hop on. It, would would you in any way worry about that? No, I don't think so. So I think that that's her. She she can she can be a bit of a, a bit of a madam at times. But 
when uh, once she gets into the stall, she knows what's expected, and from then on, she, she's very straightforward. So there was nothing different. There was nothing different about her last night to, in that respect to what you'd seen last year. No, I don't think so. Uh, she 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 can be like that the other time, especially first one of the year. So she's been waiting to be a little bit fresh. She hasn't been to a race course since the Breeders' Cup, so she she's entitled to get a little bit wound up. But as I say, once she was in the stalls, it was it was plain sailing. Well, listening to Colin Keane's uh, glowing uh, assessment of Tanawa's performance at Leopardstown last night uh, was Maddie Plale, writer on the, the Racing Post. Maddie, what was your view? What was your dispassionate view of Tanawa's comeback? Initially, Nick, the, the thing that I thought was the main takeout was her behaviour beforehand. Um, the way that she unseated Colin down the chute, she seemed quite mulish and a little bit grumpy. Uh, but now he's dismissed that you know, first run of the season. And apparently she did it a couple of times last year as well. I suppose that's lessened somewhat. I think ultimately this is exactly what Dermot Weld and Colin Keane would have been wanting. Uh, She was rated £20 superior to Silence Please and they ran off level weights. So a six and a half length beating makes a lot of sense in that context. This confirmed her well-being and showed that we have a wonderful arc to look forward to fingers crossed this year interesting as well some of the targets that Dermot World indicated could be on her agenda the big one being the Irish champion stakes which is back down to 10 furlongs now that's interesting because arguably she is a better horse over a mile and a half these days but we know she has that potent turn of foot so it will be interesting to see her up against the likes of Sir Mark Basilica there but also the Japan Cup which pricked my ears a little bit Always good to see these horses having international options further down the line. Yeah, the Japan Cup has been mentioned by quite a few people this year as a potential end of season target. And I wonder whether it's whether it's going to become an en vogue end of season, you know, shot for 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 for, for the best Europeans like it was at the sort of end of the nineties. I was going to say, when I've been in racing, it hasn't been trendy, and you haven't seen a lot of horses do it. Certainly not of the quality of Tanawa, anyway. So perhaps, I don't know how difficult it is to get a horse over there. I don't know how well logistically it fits in, but I would love to see it certainly because I think it's, you know, if it, it's a great option for these horses over a mile and a half. And we've seen horses like Singspiel won it, didn't we, many years ago. So I think it's definitely something to look forward to anyway. There's an interesting question here is to what extent you think Tanawa needs to improve massively again to give weight to this group of three-year-olds who Dermot Well believes are exceptional. And he threw wonderful tonight in as a very good four-year-old as well. What's your, what's your take on that? It's a tough question to answer. I mean, interestingly, if you look at her performances from last year, the two at Longchamp and then in the Breeders' Cup at Keeneland, she recorded identical racing post ratings of 116, 116, and again, 116. And I'm not sure we learned too much about how much ability she still possesses yesterday it's very difficult to sum up with the the quality of opposition what we can say though is Dermot World being worried about her fitness well they went a good gallop and the field ended up very strung out so perhaps she wasn't as undercooked as he might have thought although some of those in behind I think you could argue they underperformed as well I certainly think this year's crop are going to be much tougher and represent a very different challenge to Tanawa but She's an interesting horse in that she she relaxes very easily. She's a very strong stayer, but as Colin mentioned, she has the the change of pace, which makes her so effective in these best group ones. And that will serve her well, but I do think it will be more difficult for sure. 
And if you've got a horse at the moment that you think is is the one that is going to be emerge at the end of the season as the as the horse we're all talking about, which would it be? I'm a big Wonderful Tonight fan. I was really, really impe- impressed with her in the Hardwick Stakes at Royal Ascot. Perhaps at the time it didn't look great form, but since it's worked out very well, and I think it's an interesting move that she went to the Lily Langtree. I just don't think we've seen the best of her yet. And I think she's been very interestingly campaigned by Deborah Menizier. The one I'm not so confident on is probably Snowfall. Um, although she's been so impressive and she would obviously receive a lot of allowances in a race like the Ark, which will ultimately determine that sort of main horse of the year, I suppose. Um, I'd just like to see her do it against stronger opposition. So there is that caveat in her for now, for me, when I'm looking at a market and she's at the top of it anyway. Now, when a two-year-old looks as impressive as Atomic Force, you just believe that he's going to be a force in all the best European pattern races over the next year or two. With him, it's not the case. He's been sold to go to Hong Kong. He's now owned by Shupak Kwan, who's got a number of horses in training in the UK. And he will continue his career there after a devastating victory in the Prix-Robert Papin on the 18th of July. Now, the man who's responsible for... Um, nurturing this horse's career and has marshaled his transition to, to Hong Kong is Bloodstock agent Alistair Donald, who's who's with me now. Now we'll talk about the, the implications, the wider implications of this in a few moments' time. But first of all, Alistair, probably best just giving us an idea of, of why you would send a horse to Hong Kong, what Hong Kong require in a horse apart from simply raw ability. Um, no, they've physically got to be the right type you know you do need on the whole um a good sized scopy 16 hand type robust individual um which this horse is despite he's you know he's no early two-year-old he's actually quite a quite a big horse um they have pretty well conformed legs because the the training is on firm ground and a dirt surface in the morning so you do need to have um good clean legs and x-rays etc so you know a lot of horses might look the part for hong kong but physically won't um look, look part on paper but physically won't necessarily be suitable there will be disquiet that a horse of this caliber is is leaving british shores what sort of perspective can you put on that um no i agree it was a shame and we did encourage them to um, potentially give him a couple more runs. Um, the fact that he was a gelding rather limited our choices and it was really down to the flying shoulders and the abbey, which was quite a long way in the future for the for the horse. Um, and I'm sure they probably had um, Hong Kong trainers who wanted to have the horse. They, those particular owners, Mr. Sue, have various trainers in Hong Kong. And I'm sure they probably had a little bit of pressure from, from Hong Kong trainers saying, please, can we get that horse here now? Um, so yes, I think it was a shame, but I think that the gelding aspect definitely made a difference. You know, had he been entire, um, you know, he was, um, would have been, you know, had a stallion potential. Um, and from my own perspective, I was, um, you know, we bought Kotai Glory and my Hong Kong owners still have a good, good share in him. So, uh, I was slightly mixed feelings about uh, <laughs> having the horse leave for, promoting Kota Glory, who's had such a good start. Yeah, but is there a point at which a horse is, off, you know, you, you're offering so much money for a horse that it's a no-brainer? You, you sort of have to sell. Um, <laughs> you can advise an owner to 
myself, but again, it's totally personal choice. Um, regularly, huge offers are made way above horses' values, and uh, owners regularly turn them down. But I mean, it's completely um, a personal preference of you know some owners might have waited years for to get a good one, so they're not interested in selling. But you know, the, with the finances of British racing, with low prize money. Um, if you get a good offer for a horse, 95% of the time, in my experience, you should take it because this can help you reinvest into racing and maybe give you four or five years of free investment. Um, and people regularly regret it, but you know it, it's a completely personal thing of uh, how much they might need the money. Um, all, all sorts of different factors. Compassion. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, so so basically, it's it's it, it's begging two questions, isn't it? First of all, the prize money question, which we've talked about ad nauseum, but you know, every, everyone understands the the differences. And secondly, the, the the point about opportunities for geldings, and you know, you can't now run in the Commonwealth Cup, for example, next year as a gelding. Uh, do you think that's a rule that ought to be changed? Uh, it's a yeah. I mean, it definitely did preclude. I mean, the the good horse, good offensive creative force. Um, and and Rohan, yeah, Rohan as well. Um, it's a tricky one. I mean, I think uh, you know, I doubt they'll change it straight away, but it might be something definitely needs thinking about in the future. Um, you know, it's not that many horses each year that get precluded, but um, there's always going to be one or two owners might think, "Oh, damn it, we shouldn't have gelded." But then again, the horse might not be performing as well if it wasn't gelded. So you know, there's both sides of it. But yes, no, I think it's um, definitely um, needs discussing and looking at. But I think it probably won't happen straight away. And and just going back to where we started, this horse's future career in Hong Kong. In terms of horses you've bought to go to Hong Kong. Um, or causes whose careers you've been responsible for. Where would you put him in terms of in terms of ability at this stage of his career? Oh, you know, he's humbled that many sort of two-year-olds who are on such an upward curve as him. We bought lots of very nice progressive three-year-olds, and you know, quite a lot of more exposed, higher-level two-year-olds. But you know, we don't know where this horse's ceiling is yet. So that's the exciting aspect of of him. Um, you know the Hong Kong sprinters are very decent, um, but there's no. Re- he will have a slightly tough three-year-old campaign because they don't really write that many. There are no real three-year-old only races, so he's going to be thrown in quite in the in the deep end quite early, having to run against older horses, um, which was more of an argument also for keeping him a little bit longer. Um, but again, it was largely down to prize money and also the fact that they wanted to make sure the horse didn't have too many miles on the clock before he came to Hong Kong. Oh, um, oh go on. Yeah, but uh, it's hard to... Yeah, he would be one of the most exciting two-year-olds I would have had go to Hong Kong, so there's no reason why he couldn't reach a, a very high level there, hopefully. Is this indicative of, a, of as, as John Gosden and others have warned, Britain becoming a nursery for good horses and them simply just uh, ending their careers for good money outside the country? I mean... Personally, I feel I've, I've done the exporting of buying proven horses for nearly 25 years now, and I don't actually feel the volume is particularly um, higher than it used to be 20 years ago. Um, the difference is that people are now aware of when horses leave the country with the likes of, you know, 
with the internet availability, Twitter, horses are now like this, talked and written about when they leave the country. Um, 10, 15 years ago, the horse would just leave and, and people would not notice it had gone. Um, so I feel, you know, I'm buying the same volume of horses for Hong Kong now as I did 20 years ago, but people weren't aware of the horses 20 years ago leaving. Um, America has probably less horses going to America than they used to be. Australia, probably those numbers have increased. That's one country who are buying more horses, but they don't have quite quite a larger budget. So um, there's not many very high-profile horses leaving for Australia. More um, middle-of-the-road um, types, um, a little bit more action in the Middle East than there used to be. But I do, yes, you know, there is an element of, but it, it is needed. It is good for aspects. It does create money and allows people to reinvest. Um, but yes, it is sad, some of these horses going away, but I, I definitely believe that, um, you know, people, this is something people weren't aware of in the past because you weren't able to read about it, you know, with the, it's much more a global sport now with, um, the media coverage being available. Perfect. Yeah. Bloodstock agent, Alistair Donald. And it's, it's interesting, isn't it, Maddie, listening into that, that, the sale of one horse to Hong Kong, nothing particularly unusual about that in itself, can throw up so many questions about the current state of the, of the sport, really. It can, and I think what Alistair was saying makes an awful lot of sense to me, and I don't think necessarily this is a case where we should be getting too carried away. Um, Atomic Force is quite unique in many respects in that he's already been gelded so that limits his stallion prospects in this country and makes him ideal for the series in Hong Kong that he will no doubt embark on. Um, Obviously with this purchase from Supak Kwan he was never going to stay in Britain but ultimately when a horse doesn't have the option of the Phoenix Stakes, of the pre-Morney, of those other group ones because he's a gelding it wouldn't really make any sense to leave him on these shores. The only race really that they could look at to run in is the Prix de Labbe, which the fact they've mentioned it um, obviously does a, a big favour to the horse's reputation that they thought he was up to a, a, ta- a challenge like that. But it's a long time for them to wait. So I think it's, it's definitely understandable, this decision that they have made. And if you look at the horses that Tupac Khan has in Britain, Obviously, Stormy Antarctic's the one that most people will be familiar with, but Caradoc came from the dark, Duckett's Grove. And even if you look at um, an owner like Mark Chan, he's got Kinross, for instance, who we'll see on Sunday in the Pre-Morris de Geese. Their, their horses aren't staying in Hong Kong. They don't own horses exclusively in Hong Kong. And particularly looking at Duckett's Grove, he was brought back from Hong Kong because he just didn't acclimatise. So it's not as if it's... Uh, you know, the, this move is is definite. Um, but I, I certainly think with a horse like Atomic Force, it's the right decision to make, especially when you have such prize money on offer in Hong Kong. The other question, of course, that you, you've written about quite a bit this year is is gelding horses and, and it limiting their opportunities, not just as stallions, but as, as race horses, if you're going to point as a sprinter to, to a race like the Commonwealth Cup. I, I know you were reluctant to, to refry these beans, but it, it's probably just worth worth touching on your thoughts on that. For sure. I think, ultimately, geldings have so much to offer when it comes to British racing. And there are many people that will argue geldings, uh, the operation gives them um, a better mentality to withstand training, uh, the different rigours of training, and also enables them to be more consistent. 
Um, but I think ultimately geldings in all their glory are the sort of horses that we should be using as a barometer with which to measure our best. If, if a colt runs in the Commonwealth Cup and is beaten by a gelding, then ultimately that's just giving us a more accurate view of how good that colt is and exposing any flaws in his prospects at stud. It, it gives us a more realistic gauge on where we're at. And I think to undersell geldings as, as in a way, I suppose we have them by not allowing them in group ones. I mean, there's so many fantastic geldings that i mean take a horse like sirius de zagos he's the big example isn't he um wasn't allowed to run in the pre-lock de triomphe didn't stop him beating the same horses he would have beaten in an arc in other races um and he would have added so much to various editions of the arc i find it hard to believe that he he shouldn't participate i think it's i think it's unfair and i don't actually think it does us any favors in the long run and you look at the bloodstock industry, it could actually be strengthened if we were to allow geldings to participate. Okay, you mentioned the bloodstock industry. I just want to pick up briefly on the bloodstock code of practice. We spoke about it yesterday quite a bit. Um, and I just noticed in your paper this morning, the Racing Post, the uh, chairman of the Federation of Bloodstock Agents, Oliver St. Lawrence, has defended the idea of not licensing bloodstock agents did you have a thought on that ultimately a lot of this lies in the definition and how you indeed define who an agent may be um and obviously you know his argument was was to do with uh, welcoming new people perhaps from abroad to the sales ring in britain and they they therefore wouldn't be able to bid if you're going to license everyone i definitely think that the new code of conduct has to be welcomed absolutely especially in the environment that we're operating in where we know that there have been some bad apples and we we yet really understand the true extent of of it all um I think it's definitely a step forward and I'm not sure whether, you know, being against licensing is necessarily a good thing. Um, I think we should try and explore, explore all options in order to stamp out sales malpractice. Um, But I do respect that it's not a straightforward um, thing to implement. Let's talk a little bit about what's happening in, in Ireland at the moment. And, and Ireland have taken a naturally more cautious approach towards uh, tackling COVID-19. And as such, it's been longer for people to get back to, to major sporting venues. However, racing is lagging behind um, the, 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 big, the big GAA venues and the big uh, rugby venues. And, and a lot of the senior participants in the sport are getting very angry about it. I can understand that anger. When you see that ultimately, you know, there's a cap of 500 people per fixture on a race course, and then you look at the All-Ireland semi-finals who are going to welcome in 40,000 people, it's easy to understand that frustration. Um, It's worth saying in Ireland, so you need vaccine certificates to eat or drink in indoor hospitality. Why can't we bring those into racing if people have been vaccinated, make that a gateway to allowing them in? Um, But I think a lot of the overall frustration, Ruby Walsh added his voice to that um, in today's paper you'll read, um, is surrounding just the the lack of pressure being put on the government. They've said that a lot of the reasons why, for instance, with the All-Ireland semi-finals is because it's more traceable. um, And with an incident like that, it's a one-off event. There are defined sections within the stadium seat numbers, seat reservations make it easier 
to trace people. But I'm, I can understand why people would be frustrated with that, given that racing is in an outdoor environment. And at the same time, you're not going to get people who are totally stagnant when they go to a sporting event, whether it be in a stadium or not. Um, some race courses, perhaps they haven't been as aggressive as they could have been and they're receiving money via media rights, it might not be totally worthwhile for them to open up to relatively small numbers of spectators. But I think ultimately we can all agree that going forward, more lobbying needs to be done, whether that be by the Association of Irish Race Courses, who we are assured are doing all they can, or indeed just by individuals to their local politicians. I think more pressure is needed. So it is Friday, which means it is World Rankings time in the company of James Willoughby and Thoroughbred Racing Commentary. And I'm going to give you the top 12 in the world this week, plus all the significant movers from Goodwood and elsewhere. So steady at 12 is Love, whose Prince of Wales' form took those knocks. 11 down one is the runaway Jewel Oaks heroine Snowfall, whose Irish Oaks form has taken a bit of a bashing courtesy of Divine Lee. 10 is Hurricane Lane down one. Nine up seven, interestingly, is wonderful tonight. Eight, Chronogenesis steady. Seven, Mishrif also down one. Six down one is Gran Alegria, and that's because essential quality on the back of his Jim Dandy win at Saratoga, we spoke to Brad Cox last week, is up two en route to the Travers Stakes. Four steady is Adea, the Derby winner in King George Heroes, and Mark's Basilica after his eclipse romp over Adabe, and Mishrif is steady at three. Two is golden, 60 still. Top of the pile is Palace Pier, and Lady Bothorpe's a big contributor to that as well after being beaten by him in the lock-in stakes earlier in the year. And she's one of the big movers this week as well. She's up 111 to 50. Suez of the Star Sprinters up 85 to 30. Interestingly, in the staying division, Trushan is now up 196 places to 29, which means he goes above Stradivarius. The pair may meet in the Lonsdale Stakes at York. Other big movers, Jackie's Warrior, very tough American sprinter, up 10 to 16 now. Alcohol Free is up 47 to 20, the Sussex Stakes heroine, but just one place below her. An amazing position in the rankings at 21 for a horse who's yet to win a big race. Baid up 135 places. James Willoughby is here to digest and explain all of that. James, where to start? Well, let's start with Essential Quality, who is up two to five. So he's the highest place mover this week. Right, his Jim Dandy win, although it bolstered his CV, didn't really tell us much more about him. And indeed, the computer slightly worried that his top figures aren't reproducible. We, we've got him rated 125 on the, the world's best racehorse rating scale. That's the official rating scale for the sport. But he performed, according to us, only to 118. And so he gains points for winning a race and therefore bolstering his CV and making his CV deeper. But really, did nothing for his reputation overall. But he's just outside the top four. Now, if he wins the Travers then he certainly will probably penetrate the top three in the world because that race will require him to be at his best. Things that surprised me from the global rankings this week. Wonderful Tonight, up seven. I love Wonderful Tonight, but she won the Lily Langtree and she was just okay. Yeah, well, this is just a case of a horse bolstering its CV to the point where when you think about the probabilistically how good a horse is, it makes it less and less likely that she doesn't belong amongst the world's elite. Now, she's there slightly on sufferance, Nick, because horses just below her, like Hurricane Lane and like Snowfall and like uh, even, even Love, who's actually just been had her reputation dented, 
uh, they have got the potential to to overtake her if the, when they come out and perform well because we'll learn more about them and gain more confidence over their ratings. But for now, she deserves to be in that top 10 because five out of six group races, two group ones, and she keeps winning and winning. She looks a tremendous horse. Palace Pierce clinging on to that number one spot. To, ha- to, to what extent does he owe that to, to Lady Bothorpe, who we beat earlier in the season, and what she did at Goodwood? Uh, absolutely does, yeah. Uh, he was poised to go down. In fact, he did go down more than average, even with Lady Bothorpe winning. And here at um, TRC, everybody thinks that he's at number one just on sufferance, really. One of these three-year-olds is, is poised to take his crown. It's just a matter of when. And Sueza up 85 to 30. She was very, very good indeed at Goodwood. But I'm guessing that your system, the TRC system, wants to see her do something similar again before she rockets up towards the top 10. Right. I think 30 is pretty high for a European sprinter at this stage of her career without a Group 1 win as well. But she was mega impressive. And I think those people that say that it was a wind-aided fluke, I think they're getting a bit too carried away with their own ability to analyse races because... She'd also had two impressive wins in group, group three level prior to that. She's just very good, Nick. Well, the same people, James, that said that Suez's triumph in the King George stakes over five furlongs at Goodwood was a wind-aided fluke, even though she battered some of the best sprinters around by many lengths, were, were, the, were the people who were also questioning the merit of Baid after his uh, romp in the, in the thoroughbred stakes. Well, first of all, we've made his... Sir Henry Cecil Stakes win, which is a listed race, into a Group 3 because of the quality of it, which gives him, obviously, uh, we only rate group races, so now it gives him just two performances to go on. Now, the questions about Baid, I guess, are that the performance data from that um, win in the Thoroughbred Stakes, the times and sectionals, give you a little bit of disquiet. He ran slower than another good horse over a mile on the day, his sectionals suggest that there, his, his race wasn't paced ideally, but there's still some room for doubt. But all those people that wonder about him need to do is simply open their eyes because it is very difficult for a horse to be a fraud whilst basically winning turning handsprings by six and a half lengths in a group three. And especially when we already knew that that was likely from what he'd done beforehand. So for me, he's for real but he can't go any higher than 21. I mean, he's without beating better horses from now on. And trainer William Haggis will surely play him in a group one next time out because that's where he belongs. Yeah, William Haggis on this podcast yesterday confirming that although the Prijak Mamawa would come a little soon in a clash with Palace Pier, he's now going to train him up to the, the Prix de Moulin at the beginning of uh, September. So it's group one company next for Baid. He says he's got the option of the celebration mile, but he would rather... Um, make him dine at the top table, which is, uh, which is the right move, surely, James? It definitely is. I'm a little tired of, of the conservative approach of some European trainers in contrast to other handlers around the world. It's time they get on with it and really thrust these horses into competition with each other on a more regular basis. And um, good on Haggis for the route he's going to take. So, James, let us end this podcast where we began it, with Tanawa. Because last year, those with long-ish memories or regular devotees of this slot will remember that she was as high as number two in these charts. But obviously, because she hasn't run for a long time, she slipped out. Where is she likely to slot back in, do you think? I don't really know. It's got to be somewhere in the top five after a wildly impressive return. As you say, she was number two after she won the Breeders' Cup turf. And although the system doesn't take this into account, 
she deserved a massive upgrade there because unlike her reappearance, that was a steadily run race, the Breeders' Cup turf, and she actually deserved marking up for the way she won that race. She's a massively talented filly. Uh, and as regular listeners to the NLD know full well, she is in the hands of an absolute genius in Dermot Weld who's pointing her at these big autumn showpieces. I said, I remember saying back, back when she, after the Breeders' Cup, that she was a future number one this year if she just continued to progress. And Nick, I think that is very much on the cards. All right, my thanks to James and to Colin Keane at the beginning of the programme and to Alistair Donald, some interesting thoughts from him. Maddie Plough from the Racing Post is still with me. Um, Maddie, just before you, you give your tip for today, uh, I know Jane Mangan spoke about it earlier in the week. I know you wanted a quick word about Logician. There's a lovely piece written by Martin Stevens with Brian Mayo, the man who's bought Logician in the, in the paper today. Indeed, I think this is a fantastic move, uh, move that he's going to stand uh, in England, Shade Oak Stud, of course, where he'll be stationed. Um, just if you look through the, the top sires on statistics, the jump sires at the moment, if you look at the top 30, I believe horses standing um, in Britain, we have Cave Tara, who's been pensioned, I believe. You have Ask and you have Scorpion. And that is literally about it in terms of... Uh, English standing jump sires and as well when you look at logician he does have a lot in his favor he's by a, a sire of the moment in Frankel who's going to have such a, a monstrous year with the likes of Adiar Hurricane Lane we get to see what his progeny themselves will do at stud the likes of Cracksman but often Judmont pedigrees do provide us with with a good pool uh, to breed from. You look at the likes of Court Cave, you look at Champs-Élysées, he's dual-purpose Spanish moon, beat hollow coastal path. So it's a, it's a well-trodden route in that respect. And I'm really excited to see what Logician can do, and I think it's fantastic that he'll be standing here. I'm excited to see whether you can make it three winning tips in a row on this, uh, on this podcast, Maddie. I'm going to try. <laughs> it's a lot of pressure. I'm going to go for a filly called High Zoom. She's running in the 525 at Musselburgh today. She was last seen winning at Sandown over a mile and six. That was a really gritty performance. And because it was a close finish, she's only four pounds higher. Um, as a bit of a pedigree geek, I'm really interested in her pedigree. It's a fantastic Shadwell pedigree. She was bought for 23,000 guineas by Keith Daglish at the Newmarket July sale, and that could turn out to be a little bit of a bargain. Um, the trainer won this race with uh, High Zoom's new owner when it was last run in 2019 with Euro Implosion. And I just think given how unexposed she is, given her pedigree, and given the wonderful attitude she showed last time, this could be a really good fit for her. It's not a strong race, and I'm hopeful she can get the job done. Maddie, thanks so much. Thank you very much for listening. Don't forget that from nine o'clock tonight, Charlotte will be back with episode three of the Saturday edition. But from all of us, have a great weekend. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Nick Luck Daily, brought to you in association with Fitzdares, the Racehorse Owners Association and Thoroughbred Racing Commentary. Thank you.